Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Renewables. We're fired up about this week's episode, not only because it features one of our own, Peter Gohausen, who we're glad to have with us today. Uh, Peter is leading the business development efforts in our, our renewable natural gas business. Excited to get into that, get into that market, um, some of the major problems that we're solving uh, by developing the projects that, that you're working on, Peter. Uh, but we're also really excited because this is our first ever in-person renewables podcast. Uh, we are back in the office. Six at feet Biostar. apart. Yeah, six feet apart. Uh, we're back in the office at Biostar. And uh, of course, being safe, you know, wearing masks in, in common areas. But Peter and I collaborate a lot together, and we were contemplating splitting up here and going and recording it in two separate offices. And I said, no, let's 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 do it in person. So, Peter, uh, without further ado, thank you for coming on the show. Good first to be of here. All, Good to great be to here. have you. And, first podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, and hopefully not your last. Hopefully yeah. not like your last. And um, we're gonna have a conversation today about. Our renewable natural gas business, some of the things Biostar is doing, but also, you know, really just more broadly and specifically, uh, Peter is um, fantastic at just kind of looking at, you know, the market view and the addressable market. And I think you, you, I always really appreciate the lens at which you view opportunities through. So, so we're going to get into all that, um, but let's start with a little fun. Uh, Peter and I, you know, grew up together, really didn't become buddies though, until we both went to Indiana University together. And uh, Peter was gracious enough to help me uh, through the rush process out at IU, uh, go Hoosiers. And, um, and so it's great to have you on Peter and um, talk a little bit to get started about your background. And um, you kind of actually started in the green space went over to the brown side, if you will, yep. and then came back into the green. So touch quickly kind of on your career path yeah. and how you ended up here. Yeah, so I uh, good to be here, David. Thank you for having me. Excited to teach the audience a little something about renewable natural gas. Uh, so I graduated during the depths of the Great Recession. I had some family background and lineage in the real estate market, but I kind of realized that was off, off limits uh, in 2009, 2010, 2011. So the industry kind of popping up at the time was the energy business. The U.S. had just unlocked this shale revolution, which has uh, transformed the world and, and the energy markets for sure. Uh, so I really got interested in the energy space. I have some family in the space uh, down in Texas and throughout Oklahoma and Kansas. So a little bit of family ties there. Um, so jumped jumped in feet first to that space. I Initially started off working for an ethanol company in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska is an interesting place for a just graduated uh, single 22-year-old. Uh, didn't make it long there. Um, but yeah, so, you know, ethanol, as, as you might know, is the process of taking corn and turning it into alcohol, which, you know, eventually turns into a similar component to gasoline. Um, and then you blend it in the motor pool. So most... Gasoline you put in your car is 10% ethanol. And so, you know, I thought it was interesting at the time. I was like, you know, the renewable story was starting to come around a little bit. I think the Al Gore climate change hysteria really started in 03, 04. So 
slowly picking up momentum, saving the environment, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, the thing I didn't like about ethanol is we were taking a productive resource, which was corn, and using it to create fuel, and it had a negative balance. So you're using more energy, and you're paying for an otherwise productive resource, and you're really diminishing the value of the commodity by turning corn into ethanol. Hmm. Um, ethanol was a great, um, was an interesting policy at the time. It came about in 04 during the Bush administration. We were trying to reduce our dependence on foreign oil, and we had all this corn at home, and it was a good way to support, you know, corn farmers and whatnot, but I just couldn't get comfortable with the idea of, you know, uh, allocating a productive resource away from feed to fuel when it wasn't as efficient and cost-effective as a solution uh, that we're embarking on today. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, started out, you know, ethanol, trading, all that good stuff. And during that time was when the Bakken, North Dakota, started producing a lot of oil. They couldn't build pipelines quickly enough so they started leasing out rail cars to move oil from North Dakota by rail down to Houston and so the ethanol players had all the rail cars so we got into that business I started kind of seeing the light of free market economics at work in the oil industry and jumped kind of all in on that away from ethanol <laughs> and then spent the next couple of years working for midstream oil and gas companies primarily trading uh, oil which really is a glorified word for logistical uh, optimization. You're buying a barrel in one place and you're moving it to another place and doing it for a cheaper price than what you can sell it for in the new market. Um, so that, you know, a little bit of my background, uh, trading, moving commodities, developing assets and projects. And then, you know, 2013, 2014, you had uh, Tesla go public at the time. You know, Elon Musk was not known like he is today, but you start seeing this hype around this green movement. You know, Elon is a very good promoter, which is great for the renewables industry. Now, at that time, I was trading a barrel of oil called Canadian Tar Sands, which is probably the second dirtiest barrel of oil in the world, maybe mm. behind Venezuela. Mm. And putting it in a rail car, sending it to St. Louis, putting it in a barge, and then sending it down the river to uh, Baton Rouge to be refined into oil. And you kind of are sitting there, and this climate story is gaining more traction. You're like, man... You know, am I really doing anything good? Yeah. Um, How long is this going to last? Yeah, right. And it ended, or it's starting to look like it's going to end a lot quicker than anybody could have envisioned at the time. Um, but, you know, as David mentioned earlier, kind of always knew the Biostar story. Uh, grew up, you know, knowing Bill quite well and always was wondering what the hell he's doing with chicken shit. And so I think I called him during that time. I go, Bill, you know, I just see this renewable thing really taking off. You know, I think oil's never going to go away, but... The opportunity seemed to move in the renewable side. Would love to find something to do with you. Yeah, that call, you know, was a quick thirty-minute call. Didn't go anywhere. Yeah, um, you know, kept building a relationship with you, and then you know, a couple of years later, Bill was working on a project and needed a uh, oil company to finance it because it was being secured by some oil reserves. Yeah, and so through my network of um, you know oil and gas companies in Houston, was able to bring in a strategic investor to BioStar and. Uh, get a couple of big projects financed, and that really kind of kicked off my involvement with you guys. And uh, it's been, you know, quick three or four years, and hopefully an exciting next two years. Yeah, we're we're certainly excited about it. And um, Peter did a, you know, was frankly a, a low cost business development guy for us going back to 2014, 2015. 
uh, had a lot of contacts, you know, in the Texas area, um, and even through some of your contacts kind of up in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And so we've, you know, had success developing net new business and our energy efficiency business and our solar business. Um, but, but what's really interesting and where you're really spending a lot of your time now is in the renewable natural gas space. And so, um, I always say, I, I, you know, we, we do our best to understand our listener on the show. We think about half of our listeners are in the space, uh, kind of energy geeks like we are, want to be down in the weeds. And we think about, you know, half of our listeners are probably at a much higher level um, and might get lost if we get too far in the weeds. So yeah. we're going to try to kind of balance the line of that today. Um, but for a long time in the electricity business, electrical um you know, providers, utilities have been able to use wind and use solar as ways to sort of diversify their portfolio and provide their customers clean energy. Until more recently, you haven't really had that option or it hasn't been maybe as mainstream mm -hmm. in the gas business. So just talk to us kind of high level, set the stage for us. What is renewable natural gas? Why is it important? Um, kick that off. Yes. Yeah, so I like to kind of, you know, I have probably have a different opinion of the RNG space than a lot of people. Um, maybe not, but RNG's I like renewable, renewable natural, natural gas. gas. But yeah, now you can use RNG. Yeah, no perfect. So, you know, RNG, in my opinion, is more of a waste management solution than anything else. Um, you know, the traditional way of taking all of our municipal solid waste and sending it to landfills or exporting it to Southeast Asia and other developing countries and kind of pushing our problems downward. Uh, it looks to be drying up. You know, they there's certain estimates that say landfill capacity in the U.S. is under 15 years. Mm. Getting a new landfill permitted is probably harder than getting a new coal plant permitted right now. Mm. Um, so really looking at ways to to reimagine waste and looking at all the value embedded in this waste, sure. primarily methane, CH4 for you geeks. Uh, methane is a byproduct of all of the waste, yep. uh, whether it's municipal solid waste going to a landfill, whether it's cow manure, hog manure that would be spread across a, a agricultural land, or whether it's just capturing, you know, methane off of a wastewater treatment plant yep. or food waste. You know, a big slaughterhouse has a bunch of waste coming out of their process. A whiskey distillery has a bunch of waste coming out of their process. And that is a, that's a costly uh, back-end uh, task for them that generates no revenue. Sure. So you start looking at this waste sector and you say, okay, there's still value embedded in what is there. Mm -hmm. And they have it turned into a cost center. How can we kind of reposition that as a revenue center? And luckily, the uh, great and green state of California laid out a very lucrative incentive program about 10 years that really, really helped kickstart the renewable natural gas industry sure. and has really taken shape, um, you know, throughout the country, certain states more so than others. Um, but, you know, really excited about the idea of taking a wasted product and returning it into a value product. So, and in the episode, a couple episodes prior to this episode on renewables, we have John Martin on um, who runs our organic fertilizer business and, and new project development and that side of the business. That's a great episode for you all to reference um, and listen to if you haven't already. That kind of explains Biostar and, 
and our role uh, in this business, in this market, and sort of how our actually organic fertilizer business was really, um, and, and wastewater treatment business was really born from a problem. Mm-hmm. And that problem is, what do we do with all this waste? Right. Um, and so, so talk to me a little bit, just really high level, like let's use, um, let's use you know, our project in San Bernardino as right. an example. Yep. Um, just kind of walk our listeners through literally what happens there. Um, you know, the waste, how it's collected, when it's brought to our plant, what happens to our plant. I think it might be helpful just to kind of walk right. through that process. Yeah. So just a couple kind of more high-level notes on, on waste as a whole. I've got a little helpful slide deck here that I, I built kind of explaining the problem and some solutions. So it is estimated that if food waste were a country... It would be the third highest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions after the U.S. and China. Wow. So food waste is a huge emissions problem. And mm-hmm. it's obviously a landfill problem, but for solving you know, decarbonization and global warming, we need to figure out how to do something about food waste and reduce those emissions. And the emissions, explain why it's emitting. So they're, they're, it's not literally just because it's trash, right? Because it's emitting gases. Throughout the, the process, atmosphere. yeah, methane primarily being the primary one. And, yeah. you know, methane is released in all stages of the life, life cycle of these different products. So we can't, you know, fully eliminate the problem by any means. But, um, you know, if we look at food waste alone, uh, 30% of the food we produce as a, as a world uh, is wasted. 30%. Wow. And so if we reduced food waste altogether, 8% of our global emissions would be eliminated. Wow. So you start looking at, you know, all these problems and, you know, the traditional way of just throwing it in a landfill and burying it underground, that's not solving our emissions problem. You know, that's just not the most uh, effective thing to do with this waste when there is still value embedded in it. Sure. I saw a great quote um, on the Biostore kind of social account. Uh, We follow a lot of folks who are obviously very... Um, passionate about the climate and about waste. And um, one of them was there is no away. So you throw it away. There is no away. Right. It doesn't just go away. It right. has to go somewhere. Exactly. Um, and so that's a, a massive problem and that, that our business and, and a lot of other businesses out there are aiming to solve. So if you think time's right, walk us through uh, our San Bernardino yeah. Waste to Energy Project and, and just you know, at a high level, not, not too in the weeds, but where the waste comes from, what we do with it, what we, right. what's the byproduct. So yeah, to kind of backtrack or, you know, you really have to look at the incentives and kind of the regulatory policy driving these markets. Cause you know, at the end of the day, that is what drives economics a lot um, today. Um, so California, you know, well aware of this landfill program or problem started a program called the landfill diversion program where any, pre-consumed food waste had to be diverted from a landfill. Okay. So if you're a slaughterhouse in California and you know you, 10% of your output is waste, you can't take that to a landfill anymore. You either have to drive that outside of the California state borders, compost it, or basically put it through an anaerobic digester, okay. which is you know what we are capitalizing on at San Bernardino. Yeah. Uh, so we built you know an anaerobic digester. It's a technology that's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, it's widespread in Europe. There's, I believe, over 15,000 digesters in Europe. There's maybe three to 4,000, or excuse me, 
six to seven, eight hundred in the U.S. Um, and so the U.S. is really playing catch up here, like we are in a lot of the other green energy programs. Sure. Uh, so at San Bernardino, we're taking in 85,000 gallons per day of, of liquid food waste. So a slaughterhouse or, you know, other food processing companies in the area, instead of exporting their waste out of the state lines, is, is bringing their waste to our anaerobic digester in San Bernardino. And so anaerobic digestion is a lot like how the human body disposes of the food we eat. Mm -hmm. And the molecules sit in the uh, hydrolysis tank for 10 to 20 days, kind of turning over and separating into their different elements, solids, liquids, gases, etc. And then from there, you kind of further break those streams down to go do different things. Mm. So you go and, and take the liquids down and, um, you know, we're in this case turning it into methane, capturing the methane from it, and then taking that methane and putting it into a generator to produce electricity. Uh, that'll produce 2.6 megawatts or 22 million kilowatt hours per year. Mm. Um, I'm trying to get a household equivalent for uh, everybody that likes to talk in that metric. That's helpful. Yeah, that's a good way to kind of keep because we throw kilowatt hours. Yeah, so it's out the, there and it's the equivalent of yeah. six million gallons of gasoline consumed per year. Enough heat for 6,000 homes. Nice. Uh, 130 million miles on the passenger for passenger vehicles. Nice. Um, so yeah, uh, San Bernardino, you know, getting that commissioned right now. We have our uh, electrical grid interconnect in place now, and are starting to take food waste um, to go turn into energy. So we take food waste there. Um, talk really quick about the other types of waste that a lot of you know, you could put into yeah. an anaerobic digester. And then I want to get to, um, you know, what are we kind of doing on the back end and, mm -hmm. and how does all that work? Yeah. Um, but yeah, talk a little bit about um, the other waste streams that, that you see anaerobic digestion. Yeah, so the, the kind of four most common, uh, you know, the longest and oldest one is landfill gas, which is not necessarily a digester, but in terms of creating renewable natural gas, it's the most widespread and uh, you know, the federal government put a mandate in place in the early 90s. You have to try to avoid methane emissions from landfills. They started capturing that methane yeah. you know, 30 years ago. So that's kind of the most widespread from the amount of volume produced. Um, it has the least beneficial impact on the uh, carbon emissions. So the, the value of the molecule is really based upon how much emissions it's pulling out of the environment. Mm. And the landfills, you know, they are already federally regulated to pull that out of the environment. So you're not capturing much more than that already. Um, you know, the next big one is wastewater treatment plants. Uh, you know, those are pretty widespread. Um, you know, we're not actively involved in that space. Um, then these food waste ones are really grown in prominence. They're huge in Europe. Uh, the great thing about food waste digesters, like I said earlier, you know, it's a landfill diversion. So you're getting paid to take your feedstock. Mm -hmm. So you're getting paid to take your feedstock and you're getting paid to sell your energy. Yeah. So it's really nice instead of relying solely on mandate or incentives and regulatory uh, benefits, this is a true economic case that this project, you know, makes sense. Sure. Uh, which is how I like to look at things. And then probably the most, you know, tr interesting one and the one that's on the front of everybody's mind are uh, what are called CAFO operations, confined animal feeding operations, yep. large dairy farms, large 
swine farms, the chicken, um, confined animals. Yep. Taking their manure, putting it in a digester, and turning it into renewable natural gas. Um, and so I kind of went in order of most or least uh, environmental benefit to the most. Okay. So it. the confined animal feeding, you know, you've been hearing about cow farts causing climate change probably since you were in kindergarten. Um, and so taking that methane from cow manure out of the environment is, at least according to California, the most uh, or the best way to reduce global or U.S. emissions. Yeah. And so that's a very high value uh, feedstock to produce renewable natural gas from. It's really interesting. So really, if you're in the renewable natural gas business, you're in the waste energy business. Right, right. Uh, in some ways. I yeah. mean, you know, coming from the oil and gas background and, um, you know, looked at a lot of natural gas fields in West Texas and New Mexico throughout my career on that side of the fence. And yeah, so, you know, I, I really like to think of the uh, renewable gas almost as a byproduct of waste management. Yeah. I mean, these projects, uh, you know, they're producing about 380,000 MMBTU per year of natural gas. Um, coming from the oil and gas industry, it wasn't uncommon to see a field produce 600 million MMBTU of natural gas in a day. Hmm. So in terms of moving the needle on gas, you know, it's not there yet. You know, it's definitely growing and becoming a bigger part of the gas story, but Today, it really, in my opinion, is a waste management story. Sure. Um, and I think that's, you know, from an economics perspective, I think that has more legs to stand on than sure. just saying, hey, California is paying us $100 because we're taking cow poop emissions out of the air. Right. Okay, so we talked about the different waste streams that can go in, um, and you put the waste into the digester, you make the gas. And if you've already seen our episode with John Martin, there, there's a lot of uh, overlap there. Uh, we're really excited about that episode, which actually shows our plant in San Bernardino. So make sure and check that out. Um, but but we've talked about kind of the various waste streams going in. At our project in San Bernardino, we take the renewable natural gas and we convert it to electricity. Why do we do that? Uh, again, thanks to the great state of California's uh, lucrative incentive programs. Um, and I don't mean to go totally off, off topic, but you know, a large part of the shortcoming of the renewable energy story is that um, it's intermittent power. The sun only shines at night. The wind only blows through certain parts of the day. You know, the energy storage story is a big story. But today we don't have very many renewable energy sources that can run 24-7. Yeah. You know, geothermal and hydro being the, the main two. And if we want to get political and talk about whether nuclear is good or not, we can go down that on another episode. Uh, so the great thing about these projects is we are producing electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. With a little bit of downtime throughout the year. But it is baseload power. And so the state of California, which is probably has the highest renewable penetration and has huge spikes of sun and, and drop-offs and wind, and they're really looking for more baseload power. Mm -hmm. So they started a program called the Biomat Program, which incentivizes people to produce electricity from biomass, Got which it. waste is, is a biomass. Sure. Um, so if that project weren't in California, we couldn't do that. We'd probably turn it into renewable natural gas. Right. So and, let's talk a little bit, because I think that's an interesting distinguishing factor, and that's where I wanted to go. We make biogas and then turn it into electricity at our plant in California. Yeah. But renewable natural gas would actually be taking that biogas and going through another process 
to make it what's called renewable natural gas. And then theoretically, you could go and inject that into an existing gas pipeline. Is Correct. that all st stated correctly? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's really the beauty of anaerobic digestion is you have some optionality. Um, you know, a lot of these renewable sources, you can only do one thing, electricity or fuel. Right. With renewable natural gas, you have the option to sell it as uh, renewable natural gas to be used for compressed natural gas vehicles, okay. which is uh, very prominent in California driven by this low carbon fuel standard incentive program or you can turn it directly and burn it in a generator to create electricity got it uh, so there's some good optionality with that in the state of california depending on how california looks at the carbon emissions you're taking out of the atmosphere in your project they'll give you a score and value your molecule based on how much emissions you're avoiding hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, the confined animal feeding operations, they say have the highest emissions. And so they really want to incentivize those getting pulled out of the atmosphere. Interesting. So, so you, you get a higher score. Which translates to a higher price for the gas you produce. Got it. And so, you know, it's not uncommon to sell your natural gas made from cow manure in California for $100 per MMBTU. Mm -hmm. Natural gas coming from an oil field today sells for $2.50. Right. So you have about a 30-whatever times premium on that. And then it kind of goes down from there. Then you have, you know, your food waste is, you know, $60. Your wastewater treatment plant is $40. And your landfill is $20. Okay, interesting. And so the incentives kind of dictate where you're going to take your molecule, whether you're going to sell it, send it into the natural gas market or, you know, in the case of San Bernardino, it made more sense to take that waste and turn it into electricity under, under the Biomat program because it was a high-rated, you know, long-term purchase power agreement. Very interesting. And, yeah. and this low-carbon fuel standard program, which is when you're selling the gas to a fleet, you know, like FedEx yeah. or, or UPS, has these compressed natural gas fleets, you know, that all run on these compressed natural gas. In the LCFS market, one thing I think that's really fascinating about that is if you're developing a project in Idaho or in Iowa or in Missouri, you can still sell into that low carbon fuel standard market, right? Correct. And so talk a little bit about how um, you and I were on a call several months ago with a, a Fortune 100 company. I won't name the name of the company, but they basically said, if you can find us renewable natural gas, we want renewable natural gas because they have some lofty ESG goals you know, that they're trying to meet um, and they need more renewables in their portfolio. The comment I think was, well, it's not going to work unless it's, you know, because everybody making renewable natural gas is selling it to California yep. because this low carbon fuel standard credit pays so much. So talk just a little bit about the logistics. I think it's kind of fascinating that you can produce gas in Kansas and, and sell it to California. I think you can speak to logistically how it doesn't actually, that molecule right. of gas doesn't actually go to California, but sort of a virtual transfer Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, you know, again, renewable natural gas is the identical molecular compound as natural gas produced from an oil field. It's CH4. Yeah. So it's what they call it as a drop-in fuel. You can replace it one for one, and it's not going to affect the system, uh, you know, the broader system. Where, back to ethanol, ethanol is a very different chemical compound than gasoline, which, as you may may or may not have heard, you can only blend 10% of your gasoline pool with ethanol. Mm -hmm. So if we could produce enough, 
all the natural gas that's consumed in this country, which is about 90 billion cubic feet a day, could be sourced from renewable natural gas without any interruption. Hmm. You know, it'd burn the same, just with a lot less emissions. Um, so California, the way to, you know, really build supply for their uh, compressed natural gas pool, uh, allowed a program where you could produce it anywhere in the country, as long as you can show that there is a way you can move it to California. Sure. Um, so you do. So, so physically, you have to show that there's a pipeline correct. infrastructure there. Correct. Okay. That's and, super you know, it's important thing to know. Commodities are fungible. So when you hear about Exxon or Chevron saying their gasoline is premium, their gasoline that they're probably having at their gas station might have come from a BP or a, even right. a Sitco refinery because mm-hmm. commodities are fungible. Mm-hmm. So whether that RNG molecule actually gets to California, it's a fungible commodity in a system that spreads the whole country. Interesting. So as long as it's doing good somewhere in the national system, sure. in California will credit sure. you. Very interesting. And it, it is interesting to think about all of the infrastructure upgrades that come with solar and wind and, and bringing a, you know, uh, battery storage onto the grid. Um, and then you think about the gas side and you kind of go, wow, the infrastructure really is already there. Right. We just have to make the gas. Right. Uh, we have to make a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is really fascinating. Um, talk a little bit about this LCFS market has obviously really driven a lot of projects um, into being, if you will. Do you think other states will implement similar programs to the LCFS yeah, program? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so Canada, um, the as an, on the national front, just implemented a clean fuels program, which has a lot of similar similar characteristics mm-hmm. to what California is doing. Oregon has a clean fuels program. Colorado, New York State, Minnesota, I think Iowa. There's probably another dozen states that have it at some point legislation. And then the Northeast, uh, Massachusetts, New York, some of the states, D.C., some of the states up there um, are working on a transportation climate initiative or TCI, some some variation of that, where, you know, they're also trying to really push for these lower carbon fuels. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's great about this LCFS program is it's not a tax on anybody. It's an incentive program. Mm-hmm. So it's saying, hey, you know, Chevron, if you're selling gasoline in California, you know, it needs to be at this emissions level. And there's a lot of different ways you can get it there. You can buy cleaner oil, you know, use solar power. There's an infinite amount of levers to pull. And so it's really a a checks and balances. So if Chevron's fuel is not to standard, they'll go and buy these credits from a dairy uh, digester Mm. who's generating a lot of credits. And so, you know, and so Chevron is always incentivized to keep making their molecules cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Mm -hmm. And these producers of the clean or negative emission fuel, um, you know, benefit greatly from that. Where you're starting to see some states, you know, California notably, some of the other in the Northeast are trying to find just, you know, all the above solutions and, you know, eliminate internal combustion engines by 2035 you know, you got these policymakers out here sometimes that are trying to implicate these these broad, broad uh, moves in our transportation sector where they don't really have a very good understanding of, you know, what the impacts of all this is going to be. Mm-hmm. Where you look at something like the low carbon fuel standard and it's just a gradual step down every year. You know, their goal is to get uh, emissions from the fuel sector down 20% 
from 2010 levels, and they give you an infinite amount of levers to pull. Mm. You know, I'm not going to even go into them because there's so many. But so what you're saying is there are some good policies in California. Yeah, <laughs> just a couple, just a couple. They, you know, the low carbon fuel standard. I mean, there was a lot of talk of Biden potentially, um, you know, determining whether the low carbon fuel standard could work for the country as a whole mm. to replace the current renewable fuel standard, which supports ethanol. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I really think you're going to start seeing it everywhere. Um, you know, you're seeing it in a big way in Europe. You, you've got guys that make methanol in the U.S., which is a chemical made from natural gas. And they are now looking to buy renewable natural gas to make into methanol so they have green methanol to send to Europe. Mm. You know, the U.S. in the last couple of years has become one of the largest exporters of liquid natural gas. Mm-hmm. You're starting to hear some of the Japanese trading firms look for renewable natural gas in their liquid natural gas cargoes to reduce mm. the emission scoring. Interesting. Um, so, you know, it's a complicated topic for sure. And I could talk about it forever and there's a thousand different things to talk about. Um, you know, it's really exciting because it's the first kind of renewable heat source. Mm. You know, there's a lot of talk about wind and solar not being able to get hot enough mm. for steel or different industries. Yeah. You know, re- it's the first renewable thermal source that we have. Very interesting. So that's very exciting. Um, but again, I really like to think of it more as a new solution to landfills yeah and not you know in emissions reduction and you know there's just a lot of good that can come from it it's a circular economy type play yeah so very Very interesting well really appreciate you you coming on and talking about uh this topic it is absolutely a complex topic as we kind of wrap up here um and just to sort of you know for demonstration purposes for our listeners who are um and you don't have to say names what are sort of some of the companies that you're targeting or the types of, of users, um, you know, besides landfill waste uh, or diverted food waste from landfills? Like what types of companies are you calling to, co- you know, to talk about projects like these, developing projects like these? Um, I mean, wh- what does that look like? Because it's such a complex sales cycle, right? Right. Uh, right. Really big, expensive projects. But... We know that a lot of big names are out there kind of looking at this up. So, so just talk a little bit at a high level about what types of industries and what types of businesses can benefit from an anaerobic digestion uh, and subsequently a renewable natural gas project. So this will be the only time I'll ever say this live, but, you know, my first answer is I love poop. Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, these confined animal feeding operations, again, the value to produce gas from those sources is so lucrative in California mm-hmm. that those are, you know, the targets everybody's going for today. Yeah. There's some shortcomings to that, namely betting, you know, a, a project or an asset, you know, $50 million asset on a regulatory policy, mm-hmm. which doesn't, you know, it, it's California, so I don't expect that to go away. But it's still something, uh, you know, that can be taken away. At risk, time. sure. Uh, so livestock manures, you know, again, from a value perspective, are really, really interesting. Uh, these food processing plants, uh, slaughterhouses, uh, we're in discussions with a company that produces uh, pet food. Yep. We take what's called their red tote waste. Um, we're in discussions with one of the largest whiskey distilleries in the country. Nice. Um, we're in discussions with one of the largest horse racing tracks in the country. Yeah. They have a little event in May you guys might have heard of. Um, And, you know, breweries are a great, great source as well. Um, You know, anything that puts 
protein or ag into the front end of their process um, generally is going to have a waste stream that has we look for methane yield to value how much gas you can produce so it's generally going to have a good methane yield very interesting yep well uh wish you all the best i know you're working on some really really exciting things i hope you'll come back on the show because um as we're you know hopefully more and more successful and rolling out new projects uh, we absolutely want you to come back in and check in with us and it's always good to have one of our own on the show big thanks and shout out to peter gohausen uh fellow iu hoosier uh we always peter and i joke we're um we're jayhawks you know from birth but learned hoosiers yeah. so uh we're, we're still very grateful that the kansas basketball team uh isn't on probation yet yeah, as the success that we've had um all kidding aside, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. This yep. has been super interesting. And if you want to get a hold of Peter, reach out um, on LinkedIn. He's actually uh, running the Biostar Twitter account now. So get on Twitter, follow Biostar Renewables. Uh, it's funny, Peter has kicked up some pretty awesome um, business opportunities for us through Twitter, Twitter, Twitter conversations, through tweeting. Uh, so don't hesitate to read, you know, reach out to him there retweet him, comment on what he's talking about. Uh, we're always looking for dialogue with uh, with our friends. So yep. we sure appreciate the time today. This has been another episode of Renewables. Thank you for tuning in. And I mentioned before, uh, we have some other episodes on these topics. Uh, the first one is with John Martin, who runs our organic fertilizer business, which is a solutions-based company, a solution for the back end of these plants that we've been talking about today. We take that waste and turn it into our patented Biostar Super 6 organic fertilizer. So you can check out that episode. And we have some other episodes coming about soil health and about some of the benefits of our organic fertilizer. So uh, if this is interesting or if you have a long drive ahead of you, please don't hesitate to get on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us a follow, give us a subscribe, and check out some other episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next time.